everyone. Welcome to the Best Thoughts Podcast with me, Rick Johns, and my brother, Will Johns. Will, Johns. Will, Johns. Will, it's good to be back with you on another episode where we share our best thoughts, the best thoughts that we've come across and found. And Will, I'm looking forward to today's topic. Tell us a little bit about what we're going to be discussing. Today is going to be the perfect episode of Best Thoughts. <laughs> Actually, it won't be because we're, act- we're talking about perfectionism mm. and how we can try to overcome that. And we've been going through Brenny Brown's book, The Gifts of Imperfection. We love this book. And we're on to principle number two, where she talks about cultivating self-compassion and letting go of perfectionism. And it's interesting, Rick, because she defines perfectionism as a self-destructive and addictive belief system that fuels this primary thought. If I look perfect, live perfect, and do everything perfectly, I can avoid or minimize the painful feelings of shame, judgment, and blame. Mm. Okay, so there's a lot in that. There is, and there's a lot that we're going to have to unpack today, when, and I just want to, to give our listeners a, a quick preview of what we're going to be talking about today. First of all, we're going to talk about spiritual perfectionism and, and how that can be um, counterbalanced with the concept of grace that we find in Scripture. And then we're going to move on to see how perfectionism can pervade our work environment, our home environment, and finally... We need to talk about how self-compassion really is the answer, answer to this troubling problem of perfectionism that everyone fights. And so if you're out there thinking, you know, I think I'm the only perfectionist out there, you're wrong. Everyone fights this issue of perfectionism, uh, so you're definitely not alone. Well, some of us don't fight it. Some of us are perfect, like me. And so, but that's okay, because we're going to talk about grace. And I believe in perfectionism and grace. I believe I'm perfect and should have grace on all the other imperfect people. So that was a good conversation. Good episode, Will. I think we're done. You know, Rick, that reminds me of what it was like growing up with you, because when we, when we were both in high school... Uh, I remember in high school, we had moved halfway through my freshman year, halfway through your sophomore year of high school. Uh, We moved locations. You and I were at a brand new high school. We were depressed. We were lonely. We were scared of making new friends. And um, I remember jumping off the deep end into spiritual perfectionism. Mm. And, And not to be outdone, you took it even farther. So uh, I thought I was extreme. You you definitely um, had to outdo me there. And uh, we both uh, had some extreme experiences with spiritual perfectionism. Yeah. And uh, I'm wondering if you want to share with us uh, what that felt like and looked like for you. Well, I really wish you were exaggerating, uh, <laughs> but you haven't even done me justice, to be honest. <laughs> And I want to say something right here at the beginning. It's fascinating to me the more I've studied this and studied uh, just in self-understanding, I realized or I stumbled across data that suggests that firstborns, if you are a firstborn in a family, you are much more likely to struggle with perfectionism. It's, It's something that's almost innately 
carried, almost automatically carried by firstborns. And it's not that second, third, fourth, or whatever, borns couldn't have it too, but it's something that's specific to that birth order place. So I'm talking out here to all my firstborns because I am the older one. I know you could tell that by my more mature voice on this podcast, but as a firstborn, you tend to carry the the anticipation and expectations of the family. And so you you very quickly realize. And the other thing I think, Will, we know as parents, with our firstborn children, they're the ones that get all of our attention for a while because they're an only child for a while. And so we put all our hopes and dreams and we got to parent them perfectly and we're scared as a new parent. By the time you get that second and especially the third like you're a little more relaxed as a parent because you've done this before. So I think it's, na- you know, we can see how the, the home kind of naturally sets up some of that. And, and I think by the time you get to that third or fourth child, you, you probably don't even care uh, what they do. You're just trying to survive. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. It's like the old uh, stories when, when food drops on the floor, you know, you... You keep it immediately away from your firstborn, but by the third child, you just, oh, go ahead. Yeah, you don't even take it off the floor. (laughs) You just let them eat it. So true. But for me in high school, uh, yeah, like you said, we had moved. There was a lot of precipitating factors and a way of dealing with my own uh, emotional uh, upsetness and, and just trauma from the move or trying to, once again, make new friends, being in a new environment is I went very ultra-religious, and I think the quintessential memory I have, and I I credit God for putting this in my mind because I have no idea why I remember this, but I remember sitting at a supper time uh, table where we were all eating, and my mom had made corn, not on the cob, it was just kernels of corn, and as I went to eat the corn, I prayed to God, God, show me how many kernels of corn I should eat tonight. (laughs) I literally prayed that without any kind of humor or like that's the level of perfectionism and crazy that I had gotten to, that I had to do everything perfectly for God. So that meant taking the right number of kernels, which, by the way, is 68. <laughs> 68, everyone, if you're going to have a serving of if corn. You, if, if for those of you who are still stuck in it, uh, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I had similar weirdness, Rick, where um, I remember always running late for school because I would get up in the morning and be praying, and I would not start getting ready for school until God told me, that that was the next thing that I was supposed to do, mm. and and I never quite heard God tell me that. But I, you know, once the clock got to a certain point, I just started rushing around. <laughs> <laughs> but it was it was that kind of attempt, you know, to um, to control everything uh, spiritually that was so depressing and exhausting. You Did know, you just? Did you ever get God to sign your late uh, tardy slip? <laughs> it was God. He wouldn't let me. He wouldn't let me leave and be on time today. I mean, that's the problem, you know. Like when you have this, this, you know, view of life, then here's it begs the question: Well, now who's responsible for my behavior? Mm. You know, in my mind, it was all God's fault. Yeah. And yet, you know, I was the one making the choices yeah. to be late. So. 
there was a responsibility issue going on there as well. Um, yeah, perfectionism takes you in a lot of unhealthy places. Yes. And the danger of it, it is it's wrapped in achievement, it's wrapped in hard work, it's wrapped in things that we actually value. And we teach, you know, our kids and we are all taught, you know, you want to try hard, do your best and, you well, know, give it your all. And so it can easily be masked behind all these good things. And, and Rick, I'll say this with spiritual perfectionism in the church, sadly, we often applaud people that are on this mm. journey. Mm. Uh, and we applaud them because they're sincere. Yeah. We, we applaud them because they're taking their relationship with God very seriously, which, which both, of you, both of us still believe that people should be sincere and take their relationship with God seriously. But the problem is when we applaud this kind of behavior, we keep that individual stuck in their unhealthy perfectionism. Yeah. Uh, we also, um, the, the bottom line is if, if we encourage someone down the road of perfectionism, they ultimately become obnoxious <laughs> and impossible yes. to deal with. Yes. And, and uh, we can and say that because we've been there and been that person. <laughs> we have. And, and you become very judgmental uh, once you kind of embrace perfectionism then you also need others to rise up to your standards, and that can be really bad in a church setting. So, um, so Rick, I want to share a story real quick, and this is my story of how I got out of perfectionism. Um, and, and part of it happened was I, I'd been in it, spiritual perfectionism, for about a year in high school, and we were on a spring break, and I started uh, reading this book by an author who had had a similar journey. And he was, he was very open and honest about his perfectionism, and it started to loosen me up a little bit uh, around this, this area of spiritual perfectionism. But finally, I had a friend of mine in the summertime, um, I was doing janitorial work, and uh, I remember this distinctly. I was listening to the sermon tapes, tapes, that my friend gave me, some of you don't know what tapes are, and I was listening to them on a Walkman. <laughs> some of you don't know what that is, but it's, it's like what your phone is now as far as an audio listening device. Have mercy. All right. <laughs> some of you know what it is. And um, I'm, I'm sweeping these stairs. I never forget. I'm sweeping stairs, listening to this sermon, and the pastor says this principle and it set me free from, from that point forward. I've, I've really never gone back. He said, here's the principle of the New Testament. Done, therefore do. Hmm. He said, your salvation is done. It's cared for. It was accomplished by Jesus on the cross. It's a free gift. Once you accept that, you're so full of joy that you then do the good works that the Bible recommends. Mm. And, and it's just such a simple concept, but that concept of grace really set me free uh, from this spiritual perfectionism. Yeah, because we, we get hung up on God being perfect. And so then we think, oh, I have to be perfect because God is perfect, therefore I have to act perfect. And that's not the message of the Bible at all. The message of the Bible is you are saved by grace, not of yourself. And so just taking yourself out of that equation 
And it's so liberating and freeing. And I love your story, Will. It, it almost reminded me of uh, Martin Luther, the great reformer. And <laughs> he's crawling up uh, the stairs. That's a famous story on his knees, trying to earn salvation. And then he hears this voice in his head, the just shall live by faith. And yes. he goes, what am I doing? You know. And if there is someone listening today that does kind of struggle with that view of God and struggle with that view of themselves and always feeling like I'm not probably good enough as a Christian, read Ephesians 2, read the New Testament, read the Galatians, read uh, the Gospels, you know, all of it. The whole yeah. message is it's not about you. It's not about your works. All of that's taken care of. It's done. Yes, read read First John five thirteen. That um, you know, this is a confidence that we have that if we, uh, whoever knows Jesus, has the assurance of eternal life. And, mm. and so, there's so many passages of Scripture that you could turn to. Uh, we don't have time or the scope today to to get into that further, but. Uh, just trust us that we're both pastors, and uh, we've studied this for a really, really long time. <laughs> and if you can't take our word for it, get right into the New Testament and, and find it for yourself. But uh, grace sets the foundation for actual spiritual growth. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and here's the lie, and we're going to get into this more, but the lie of perfectionism is that if I beat myself up really good for my mistakes, mm. that will help me not make them again. Mm. And the opposite is actually true. The more you beat yourself up, the worse you'll be the next time. Yeah. Yeah. The more shame you pile on. Hey, that reminds me of the definition that we started off with. Can you read the, the second part to that definition again? Um, I think that ties in exactly with what we're saying, as well as gives us a little extra to think about. Yes, yeah, so it, it says perfectionism is a self-destructive and addictive belief system that fuels this primary thought. If I look perfect, live perfectly, do everything perfectly, I can avoid or minimize the painful feelings of shame, judgment, and blame. And I think for me, that really resonates. If I'm honest and take some time to kind of reflect on my own ambitions and my own perfectionistic tendencies, it is that desire, that fear of being blamed, shamed, judged. And guess who's the first person that will shame me when I don't measure up? It's me. In fact, there's a lot of things I won't even attempt when I'm in a perfectionistic mentality. I won't even try things because I can't do it perfectly. So why do it? And so you can spend, if you're truly stuck in this perfectionism, you can spend your whole life just playing it safe, never risking everything, never risking anything, never taking a chance because you're really trying to avoid any kind of discomfort and pain that might come if you try something and it doesn't go so well. And someone might be there to laugh at you or judge you or say, wow, I can't believe you did it that way. Um, and, and probably the real fear is your own judgment because you're already judgmental in your mind and you just assume everybody else is going to judge you uh, for it. 
You know, Rick, that's such a great point that that the first person to to be the, the voice of judgment and shame is yourself. And I just want to point out that I'm the second person that will jump in there and pile on on you. <laughs> <laughs> True enough. Yes. <laughs> no, like I I I agree exactly because it's ultimately I would say 90% of the shame and judgment that I fear is not from outside of myself, it's from myself. Mm. I'm worried about that voice in my head and what that voice is going to do to me and say to me even more so. Now of course it's even more painful when it's personified in another person's voice. And, and um, often there are times in our, in our uh, families of origin where maybe we had a parent that also voiced shame and judgment uh, as, as a way to try to get us to behave. Yeah. Um, sometimes in our, in our marriages, we may have uh, a spouse that voices shame and judgment as, as a way to express hurt feelings or as a way to uh, try to control our behavior. So it, it's not like it, it doesn't come from the outside. It certainly does come from the outside as well. Um, but, but ultimately, if, if I don't have a voice on the inside agreeing with the voice from the outside, um, then the voice from the outside loses its power over me. Yeah. It's the voice on the inside that says, they're absolutely right, Will. You know, you're an idiot. That, it's that voice that really, I'm, that really scares me and that really takes me down yeah. and makes me feel shame and, and depression. Yeah, uh, it reminds... I listen to it and give it credibility. Yeah, it reminds me of a time uh, early on in, in my first marriage, I was asked by my wife to install some shelves in a small hall closet that we had. It was kind of a little linen closet tucked into the hallway, and it was a small house. It was our first house. And so I'm putting in these shelves, and you know, I haven't done too much of that. I'm still pretty young. And I decide that the lower shelf, that if I cut out a circle kind of in the shelf, maybe a half circle, I guess is a better description, then I could put the vacuum in there because it was an upright vacuum and the top of the vacuum stuck up, but it, it obviously couldn't go through the shelf, so I had to cut around the vacuum. And I was very proud when I finished this project and had this lower shelf with this big odd cutout in it so that we could keep the vacuum in the, in the linen closet. And so when uh, my wife at the time came home, I was so excited. I had the closet door closed. And then I said, all right, honey, I want to show you. And I swing the door open and it's like, ta-da. And she takes one look at that and goes, what did you do to the bottom shelf? I said, well, can't you see the vacuums in there? We don't need to keep the vacuum in here. I'm like, well, but look, I cut around it like I was so proud of it. And she was just couldn't get past how ugly that bottom shelf looked. <laughs> and there was so much shame. And she's like, you fix that right now. That's dis-. And she didn't even comment on the rest and walked away. And let me tell you, what was the first thought that went through my mind? Not only, first of all, shame, but the second thing was, I am never doing another project for her again. <laughs> because it was that shame and fear of rejection. I felt very rejected 
when I'm all excited, hey, look what I did. And she's like, oh, that's the ugliest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> Maybe she didn't say those words, but that's what I heard. And so this perfectionism and this shame and this fear of rejection is very real for all of us. And I think it keeps us, you know, what was my attitude? I don't want to do another project for you again. Now, that's ridiculous because I probably could do a lot of other projects and I have done a lot of other projects. But I was just thinking how this fear keeps us from doing so many things in life when we could actually become very good at them. We just have to learn. We have to be willing to make mistakes. Yes, and I'll tell you a story from the other side of that because for me, after I moved past the spiritual perfectionism, then what I found is that perfectionism started to creep into my home life and into my work life. And, and so in the, I'll give a home story since you, you just shared one. And, and this is one where I'm on the other side. I'm the bad guy in the story. And, and so then it's my own voice of shame beating me up. Mm. Um, and and it, it came from a, a vacation that I had with my family um, probably five or six years ago now. And um, we had taken our, our kids to see this special show. We were down in Pigeon Forge and, and um, it was an illusionist who was doing these little tricks. And, and at the end of the show, he promoted this little magic wand that, that all the kids could buy for like $20. And, and me being the frugal uh, parent that I am, I did not want this uh, illusionist to swindle me out of my money to pay $20 <laughs> for a $2 uh, piece of garbage magic wand <laughs> that, that my kids would be tired of in five minutes. But the way he set it up, he, he just sold it so perfectly. Uh, and my youngest daughter just wanted that for all the world. And, and if I had to do it over again, I probably would have just gone ahead and wasted the money. But I did not. I refused. We got in the car. We were driving about two miles back to our hotel. And, and along the way, my youngest daughter is screaming at the top of her lungs, I want that magic wand. <laughs> <laughs> and, and with each scream, I, I'm starting to lose it a little bit more and a little more. And so I come up with the terrible idea that, that maybe I could shout her down. <laughs> <laughs> so I start yelling back, be quiet, <laughs> at the top of my lungs. Uh, needless to say, it created a very tense and awkward uh, situation. My, my children are not used to hearing me raise my voice. And so they thought I was furious. I really wasn't that angry. I just wanted her to stop shouting, but uh, I chose the, the worst possible uh, means to, to accomplish that. And, and when it was all said and done, and I'm reflecting on what happened, I, I just feel awful. You know, mm. I'm just beating myself up. I'm thinking, I'm just the worst parent in the world. How could I have allowed this to happen? How could I have lost my cool that way? I need to stay calm. I need to model the behavior that I want to see. I, I went down to my child's level. I mean, there was so many levels 
I scared my my children, you mm -hmm. know. Uh, I mean, it was there were so many levels of shame for me on this. Yeah, you you scared me just telling the story. <laughs> I, I, remind me not to vacation with you. That does not sound relaxing. It was not at that moment. <laughs> <laughs> and and so you know what I had to do is is come to the point where I started to practice self-compassion hmm. and just say, all right, listen, you're a human being. A screaming child is tough for anyone to handle. And um, you did the best you could. And unfortunately, in that situation, the best wasn't very good. Hmm. But you did the right thing when it was all said and done. You apologized to everyone. You made it right the best you could. And now it's time to let it go and move on yeah you know yeah. And, and 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 that's that's the killer of perfectionism is in perfectionism there's no room for error yeah and then there's a terrible story when there isn't a a mistake that's made and the story is this can never be undone yeah this mistake is forever mm. and and that story is absolutely paralyzing yeah you know yep yeah. Uh, so the, the self-compassion was what let me let it go and move forward and, and helped me to, to do better in the future. Absolutely. And you touched on something that has been absolutely life-changing for me, which is that concept of self-compassion. And that is the secret to beating perfectionism. And that's what Brene Brown says here in chapter uh, two of her book is you cultivate that self-compassion as a replacement for the perfectionism. And she comments on the work of Christian, uh, sorry, Christine Neff. And Dr. Neff is a researcher who has done a lot of research on self-compassion. And I remember, I don't know, maybe eight or nine, 10 years ago, I heard a podcast with Dr. Neff and she was talking about all her research on self-compassion and it totally changed my life. In fact, I remember listening to the podcast at least three times because I was like, I've never heard this before. I've never thought about this before. And she said in her research, she was studying children and especially in the educational system. And she said in the 80s, it was all the rage in education to build self-esteem, that all the research showed the kids who had a good self-esteem they excelled, they thrived, they were healthy, they could handle change, they could handle trauma. Uh, so every educator and every child developmental person was seeking to develop healthy self-esteem in children, and they were teaching parents to do it. But she said one of the problems with self-esteem is that self-esteem is often built on feeling superior. You have to be better than. You have to be the best. You, you have to be really good at something in order to have self-esteem. So then in the 80s, they started realizing, well, this is a real problem because not everybody's good at everything. And when you're teaching kids, you can't give everybody a hundred if they miss some of the problems. And some kids are going to struggle with math and others are going to struggle with reading. And does that mean they don't get to have any self-esteem? And so then you get these stickers about, you know, you're number one, you're the best, and every kid gets a prize, and every kid gets a trophy. 
And we have all these kind of crazy ways of trying to do the self-esteem. And she said, we started seeing all these negative effects because kids are comparing themselves to others. Kids are having to put other kids down so they feel like they're better, they're number one. And it's creating stress and it's creating, uh, actually creating low self-esteem by trying to emphasize good self-esteem. And then she said, we stumbled onto self-compassion. And she said, this had all the benefits of a good self-esteem with none of the negatives, mm. none of the bad outputs. And I started thinking about it. I said, yeah, that's exactly where I struggle. Of course, I'm a child of the 80s. And so that's exactly what part of the struggle has been is the emphasis, well, in order to have value, I have to do something of value. I have to accomplish something of value. And self-compassion says, no, it's not about what you accomplish. It's about are you living your authentic self like we talked about last week? Absolutely, Rick. And, and oh, I was just thinking with your story there that the self-esteem focus, uh, especially a perfectionistic self-esteem focus, it leads to hypocrisy. It leads to fakeness. Mm. It leads to where we, we put, you know, these photoshopped photos of ourselves on social media. So we look like we're the perfect mm. family, we're the perfect looking couple, we're the perfect this and that. Um, because we we know that in reality we can't live up to that yeah, yeah. but self-compassion says it's okay to not be perfect yeah and and when i can talk kindly to myself when i can treat myself with gentleness and kindness and when the voice in my head says you know will you could have done better there and you're going to do better next time. You're going to learn from this. And yeah. you're going to be okay. When the voice in my head turns from, from being my worst critic, to, to turns from beating me up to supporting me, it just makes all the difference. And you know what results from that is self-esteem. Then I feel good about myself. Yeah. I remember our friend Lich, who we referenced also in our first episode, who is our chaplain, and he was such a good influence on us. I remember him telling this hilarious story of asking someone to take a picture of he and his wife at the beach, speaking of vacation stories. <laughs> and so they're going and they're standing there. And the person that he handed the camera to, and I think this is before cell phones, this is back when we had actual cameras, didn't know how to work the camera. And he's trying to smile and hold his wife and the person's fumbling with a camera. And he said, I'm noticing all these people watching us. And he becomes self-absorbed and self-obsessed with all these people watching him. And he's getting more and more self-conscious. And he says, I'm starting to like yell at my wife, like, hey, stand still in this. And then I'm starting to yell at the guy with the camera. And he said, it was, here I am trying to have a loving picture with the person I love the most in the world. And it goes from, I love her and I want this picture with her to, I hate her and I hate the guy with the camera and why are all these people staring? <laughs> and again, that self-esteem and perfectionism <laughs> instead of self-compassion uh, comes out. And we can relate to that. And uh, to your point, Will, I think next time you go on vacation, make sure to include a few pictures on Facebook 
of you screaming at the kids. Just <laughs> that will help all of us know that you're human and that we can all be human too. I think it would be comforting. Oh, yes, yes, yes. It, you know, what's <laughs> fascinating is with self-compassion, it leads very naturally to being compassionate towards others. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, the Bible tells us to do unto others as we'd have them do unto us or to love our neighbors as ourselves. And, and there's an assumption there that we will love ourselves, that we will be compassionate towards ourselves. And, and the more we practice that, the more that will seep out into the relationships that we have with other people. Absolutely. And, and so I, I would just want to challenge our audience yeah. um, to just really pay attention to the voice in your head. In, in the upcoming weeks, just really pay mm. attention to that. And when you hear the negative, critical, judgmental voice um, step in, I want to challenge you to push back against it with a more compassionate voice. Yeah. You ultimately get to decide what the voice in your head is saying to you. Mm. You can decide that. You have the power to push back against it. But the first step is you have to notice it. And when you notice it, then you can do something about it. So I, I, I feel like for me, it was that step that set me on the path of self-compassion. Yeah, and for my closing thought, I just want to share with everyone that concept of self-compassion. If you will apply it in your life so the next time that you mess up, the next time things don't go the way you wanted, the next time you find yourself afraid to try something or afraid to do something, or you've been asked to do something or to present or whatever, and you feel all this fear because what if it's not good enough? What if it doesn't go well? What if I mess up? Stop, take a few deep breaths and say, what would self-compassion look like right here? And, and like Will said, you can talk to yourself in a new way and say, it's okay. Even if this doesn't go well, even if I don't make it, it's okay. I'm human. God's got me. He's gracious. I can relax. I don't have to be perfect. And it's going to take a lot of times of doing this before it starts to just kind of sink in. But it will change your life. Learning to practice compassion towards yourself. It allows you to forgive yourself. It allows you to release the shame. It allows you to get past the guilt. And then it allows you to love others with that same gracious self-compassion. Uh, that is exactly right, Rick. Like, um, if you hear nothing else from everything we said today, hear what he just said. Practice self-compassion. It absolutely will change your life. And it, and it sets you up for the point that we're going to be talking about in our next episode. Um, this is guidepost number three from Brenny Brown's book, The Gifts of Imperfection. We're going to talk next time on cultivating a resilient spirit, mm. how you can get through tough times like we've just had in the last 11 months. Yes. And, and letting go of numbing and powerlessness. Mm. And, and I tell you, there's nothing more empowering than practicing self-compassion. 
That's right. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to Beth's Thoughts with Dr. Will Johns and Dr. Rick Johns. We're so glad you were with us, and we look forward to being with you again on our next episode. See you next time. Bye.